Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Tonight we will go back in time, the seasons pass, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight we will explore the world of gridiron grace. Welcome to Gridiron Grace, football history and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Grace Publishing Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Slick Enterprises. We're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Slick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I will be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We're covering 140-plus years of football history and memorabilia. You can find us on the web at Magazine, sponsored by MSP Sports Cards. Please check out their website at www.mspsportscards.com for all their vintage and historical football cards and pieces they have available for sale. And we're also sponsored by BST Auctions. Please check out their website at bstauctions.com. And it is at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host, who's a contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine. He's a football memorabilia historian. He specializes in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawks items, in particular Steve Largent. He hails from Portland, Oregon, Mr. Joe Squires. Joe's having a few technical difficulties right now. He'll be joining us a little later on in the show. Now, normally at this time of the show, Joe and I start talking about a particular piece of information or topic that we are looking at within football history and football memorabilia. And as such, it is a time where we try to talk about and we try to look at certain things with regards to the hobby and what's going on in the hobby. And at this time, I also want to spend just a minute 
talking briefly about the passing of Alan Rosen, who was well known as Mr. Mint in our hobby. He passed away. He was only 70 years old. Uh, I had heard from several people uh, in the past that he was having some medical problems. I do not know health issues. And as such, uh, he was not uh, feeling well, and he did pass away this past week. Now, whether you disliked him or liked him, he was certainly a character for the hobby. Uh, he was a well-known advertiser for the old Sports Collectors Digest. I remember many, many of his ads over the years in which he claimed to be a uh, very big buying machine and was a buying machine and bought an enormous amount of cards over the years with regards to different collections. He never really got that much into football. I'm sure he did handle some football cards over the years and uh, he was very much uh, involved more so in baseball than he was in football. So he was more known to the baseball hobby than he was to the football hobby. But as far as I'm concerned, he was still very, very much uh, part of the hobby per se. So Mr. Mint Allen Rosen passed away at age 70 this past week. And a uh, big piece of hobby news uh, in the overall view of the hobby and his impact in the hobby, to say the least. I'm going to talk a little bit about, right now, the 1952 Bowman football card sets. And for those who don't know, and for those who do know, there were two different types of sets produced in 1952. There was a small version of the set, and there was also a large version of the set. Smaller cards and larger cards. The larger cards, basically almost like the sizing of the 55 All-American, 56 Tops sets, uh, bigger cards in the market. The small 52 Bowmans were the same size as the 51 Bowman set, and as such, they were a, an interesting uh, smaller version of the larger version. Now, there's a lot of different theories that have been expanded over the years with regards to uh, why the two different sets were produced, and I really never never really gave over an overabundance of thought as to why, other than they were trying to produce more cards, they were trying to sell more cards at the time, and uh, the Bowman producers did have a small issue the year before as Tops, as you know, produced the 1951 Magic set, uh, which was a group of college players that were sold. And as such, the, um, as such, he uh, was, I'm sorry, as such, the uh, competition might've been there, which Bowman was aware of, so they figured if they get two different types of sets out, they'll get more buyers for their cards, and with the more buyers of the cards, they would attract uh, more business, so on and so forth. Now, I know I've talked about this in the program in the past, many different, or in several different occasions, I've talked to probably several of our listeners at the same time with regards to this. I really never grew a strong attraction to the 1952 Bowman large set. The Bowman Large set has a very, very expensive card, which is the last card in the set, and that's the card number 144, Jim Lansford card, 
apparently being produced at the end of the printing sheet, as the um, story goes, which is pretty much uh, a valid perspective with regards to looking at the at the printing sheets. And I, I have looked at pictures of the printing sheets over the years. So that last card in the sheet it was destroyed in a lot of cases. So it was a not a uh, a card that was that was basically found easily in the uh, set. So as such, it became a, sh- a very, very difficult short print card to purchase. And in graded condition, obviously, the price of the Lancer card has gone completely through the roof. Uh, I've seen uh, lesser grade examples going for thousands upon thousands of dollars for the, for the uh, card itself. And because of this, it's, again, prohibitive, cost-prohibitive for a lot of collectors, especially those collectors who do not collect uh, graded cards, even in lesser condition and poor condition and fair condition, it becomes a very, very difficult card to collect. So I really never gained traction in the 52 Bowman large set. I did complete the 50, uh, 52 Bowman small set many, many years ago. Obviously, my set is not in perfect near mint condition. My number 144 Lansford in my small set is in lesser condition. It's not in the greatest condition, but I was happy to get it. I got it at a at a very reasonable price back then, and I bought it. Uh, I vaguely remember in the early 90s, and I finished off that set. And that was the last card I did need for the set, so I, it did take me a while to to get it and uh, to finish the set. But the 52 Bowman Lard back in my notes before the show this week, and I said to myself, I have put together partial sets of the 52 Bowman Large set on four separate occasions, dating all the way back to the mid-80s. And at each time, I ended up with no more than 50 cards on the set, and I ended up trading and selling off the cards as time went on with regards to getting rid of it, saying to myself, the 52 Bowman Small takes the place of the 52 Bowman Large. And because of it, uh, I am complete on my on my Bowman set. Now, over the, the past few months, I've talked to several people via email, via letter, via the phone, and they said, you know, with the collection you got, being complete from 1948 all the way up to 2015 of the mainstream football card sets, why did you not complete the 52 Bowman large set? And then I basically gave all the reasons I've given so far, you know, I just, I'm just not excited about spending that kind of money on card 144, the Lansford card. So because of it, it's again, being cost prohibitive. I just, I lost steam on it. I really haven't had the urge, the need to finish it. Some collectors have pointed out that I should finish it. Others are saying they understand where I'm coming from, so on and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. This time in my 52 Bowman Large set, I have 35 cards, and the cards are in relatively nice condition. I grade them VGEX or better. They are uh, pretty nice condition. And again, they're collector-grade condition. I'm not worried about sending any of them out to be graded because I really don't like graded cards, as those individuals know. So, as far as I'm concerned, I'm probably going to still call it quits with the 52 small and not worry about the large. 
but just giving my reasoning behind it and giving me uh, giving our audience uh, some thoughts about it. If you are going to or you want to complete just a Bowman run from 48 to 55 and not worry about any other sets, I do believe the 52 Bowman large is doable in lesser condition, meaning that your Lance Ricard is going to be in less condition than what uh, than a near mint example or a graded example of a very high level. Obviously, if you can afford it and you want to get a nice looking Lanceford and you demand a near mint or mint set, obviously you're going to spend a lot of money for it and you're going to be hunting for it for a while because I really don't see a lot of them in the market. I really don't see a lot of Lanceford's in the market that are available in better condition and as such they are very costly. Looking at my 48 to 55 Bowman run, the first set of Bowman football cards that I completed when I decided to do the run of football cards back in the mid-80s was the 55 Bowman set. And that set, to me, was always relatively easy to find. It was always relatively easy to pick up. My 55 Bowman set is in relatively nice condition. I only have a few cards I need to... Uh, finish uh, an upgrade on the set to almost near mint uh, condition. So it, it's an, a relatively easy set to put together. You can find those cards available if you look for them. And I do remember, and I know I talked about this in the past, I can remember going to card shows many, many years ago and seeing dealers have a handful, their Bowman inventory, the handful of Bowman inventory they actually had, was the 1955 Bowman set. And because of it, it was very, very interesting to see the cards, especially in the 80s when I really hadn't seen them before, and that they were uh, readily available, in my opinion, to put the set together. Of all those sets, I had the most problems completing the 53 set and the 48 set. And again, I'm going back to the time of the 80s where... You did not have the internet. You did not have the great ability to find the cards, so on and so forth. So I really had to hunt them down. And uh, as the internet started to become a little more popular, I did pick up the handful of 53 cards I remember needing in relatively nice condition uh, off of eBay at the time and finished that set. So it's an interesting it's an interesting run. I, I strongly suggest to any collector that you can, with a little work and a little money, put together a 48 to 55 Bowman football card run uh, with relative ease and uh, with some looking. It'll be interesting for me to see at the National this year in Chicago how many dealers actually have a good inventory of 48 to 55 Bowman sets, because I know a couple people in particular are starting to put together that run and, and are looking for cards in those sets. So interesting to see the inventory that's available, what kind of older cards are going to be there. Which leads me to the second thing I was going to touch upon tonight before we uh, talk to our guests is uh, I, I got correspondence about a month ago from an individual and asked me, should I go to the National? And if I go to the National, how much money do I bring? What do I look for? So on and so forth. And I know a lot of our listeners do go to the National on a regular basis. I'm sure some of you have never been to a National. 
I highly recommend if you can afford going, go. Take as much money as you possibly uh, are comfortable with spending there. And it will probably take you at least two days to work every table, from table to table, looking for your particular wants, whatever they may be, football cards, publications, ticket stubs, and the like. And I always said the National to me is like a uh, museum, traveling museum, seeing a lot of the different items, the cards, memorabilia there that you will not see at small shows and you won't see at a lot of regional shows either. So my advice to anybody who has never been to a national, try to make it out there. I think you'll enjoy it. Be comfortable with the money you want to take and spend. Don't overspend, but take your want list and look for those real hard-to-get items that you're looking for, the ones of ones, the two of ones that you're looking for to finish sets, maybe the hard-to-find program, the hard-to-find ticket stubs, so on and so forth. And I distinctly remember this past national, which was in Atlantic City, I brought a bunch of football programs with me, and I was happy to help a longtime collector of football programs. Uh, he picked up two for his collection that he had been looking for for quite a while. These were some old uh, New York football giant programs from the 50s, and I helped him complete uh, a, a small portion of his run. But like he said, going around the show and looking at what he looked at, he was able to find uh, quite a few things for his collection. He was very happy, and he came down, and they, he went to the show. So my opinion is, again, if you want to go to the show, make sure you go. Don't be afraid to go. And as such, be prepared to spend some money. Be prepared to spend uh, two full days on the sales floor, going from table to table. Do not be afraid to ask dealers about certain items. They may not have everything they have on the table because of limited space. A lot of dealers, like myself, have stuff stored in boxes behind it. I'm sure all dealers would be happy to accommodate you and help you with regards to looking for items and checking their stock and checking their inventory. And again, it also is a good idea to contact the dealers that are there who say, well, I may have some in inventory back home. Give them your names, give them your phone numbers, give them your email addresses. Let them look for the items also. Let them see if they can find anything for you at home. I know I do this all the time. I take individuals' names and numbers and email addresses, and I've been able to find a lot of stuff for people and help them with their collections. So it's a good way for you to, again, look for items. And I think you'll be, uh, if you've never been to a show the size of a national, you will be very, very, very impressed, to say the least. And in some cases, you may be completely overwhelmed at what you uh, will see there and find there with regards to what's available in the, in, the, uh, in the show itself. So, again, it's in Rosemont, Illinois, which is right outside of Chicago. It's an easy flight into O'Hare. If you're flying out there, there's a lot of shuttle that run right into the convention center and all the hotels that are around there. I'll be out there Tuesday through Saturday again for the show, and I'll be more than happy to see any uh, talk to anybody there, any readers or listeners with regards to their collections and finding out anything with regards to what they have available. 
uh, or uh, what they were looking for, I'm sorry, and what I may have available for them at the same time. So it's a good show. It's, it's good to find. It's good to look at. And I highly recommend you going. Now, at the same time, don't overlook and don't un- underestimate your local shows either. Uh, I know we talked about in the last show, there's a huge amount of individual uh, shows here locally in Connecticut and uh, a very, very mixed bag as far as the items are concerned with regards to what's available. However, I still go to quite a few shows here locally, and I look around for items and see what I can find and see what I can see at the shows themselves. You never know what you might find. You never know what, what might be available for you. All right, in a few minutes, we're going to have our guest. We're waiting for him to call in. Unfortunately, Joe is having some technical difficulty, and uh, hopefully we can get him on the show before the end of the show. A couple other points to make uh, in uh, the hobby today. <clears throat> the Super Bowl coming up in uh, a week. Very disappointed that my Packers were not able to get into the show, and because of it, uh, we see the Falcons and the Patriots living here in New England, obviously big Patriots uh, country. The Patriots are, uh, in many cases, New England's team, although there are many Giants, Jet fans, and other team fans here throughout the country, uh, throughout the region, I'm sorry, and because of that, you read a lot about Brady, you read a lot about Belichick, you read a lot about the Patriots. The Falcons, the surprise team, in my opinion, that is not watched a lot here in the area with regards to the uh, seeing them every week. I think a lot of people were surprised seeing them and seeing how powerful they were with regards to the uh, how powerful they were throughout the season, and it should make for a very interesting Super Bowl, to say the least. So because of it, with regards, uh, it should be uh, an interesting Super Bowl, to say the least. And again, it's at this time, we see a heated up grouping of uh, demand for Super Bowl items, and as such, it becomes a very, very interesting part of the of the uh, hobby. More demand for the Super Bowl programs, more demand for a lot of other items, and it should be uh, an interesting game to say the least. Again, I want to remind our listeners: we're sponsored by MSB Sports Cards. Check out their website at msbsportscards.com. And also by BST Auctions. They have a big auction coming up with Mike Blaisdell's items being offered for sale. And uh, again, check out their website. And if you have not registered for their auctions yet, please do so. Their website is bstauctions.com. Again, check out msbsportscards.com and BST auction.com. Uh, Again, we're waiting for our guests. I'm 
being told he's having some technical difficulties. So we'll, we're going to wait a little while with regards to him, and uh, we'll just take it from there. Other mail that I received and other correspondence I received with regards to the hobby. Again, if you got the last copy of Gridiron Greats Magazine, the Gridiron Greats Magazine had an article on uh, Kansas City Chiefs Championship Rings by Michael Borkin. And uh, Michael's our ring expert. Uh, phenomenal collection, phenomenal information that he offers on rings. Rings are one area I did not, uh, have not ever gotten into with regards to the uh, into hobby, into collecting, and as such, I, I know a little bit about them, but nowhere near what Michael knows about the uh, about the rings themselves. And uh, the article, very, very interesting, very, very pointed with regards to. the history of the Texans uh, with regards to the one ring that they had back uh, from the AFL and then the Chiefs rings when they were both in the AFL and the um, NFL. So that's an interesting view, interesting article. We also talked a little bit about Mike. Blaisdell's Super Collection and its upcoming auction, which is being handled by BST Auctions, a very monumental historical auction with regards to uh, his items, many one of one items. And we also talked, uh, we saw an article on Doug Atkins by Barry Blair, and Barry's going to be a guest on the show in the future. He wrote a very, very interesting fiction book entitled Super Deaths, uh, on a the uh, possibility of a, of a major, major, major problem that occurred at the Super Bowl many years ago. And I don't want to give away the plot, but for those who read the book review, I highly recommend that book. It's a very, very interesting book, a very, very uh, great read, something that you're going to pick up and you're probably going to read from start to finish immediately. And uh, my good friend Mark Speck wrote a book, Playing for a Hoagie and a Beer, talking about uh, minor league football, very, very minor league football in Pennsylvania. And it brings me back to the time looking at and watching my favorite minor league Patriots that played in West Haven, Connecticut, back in the late 70s. It was a very, very cheap night out for me and saw some interesting football to say the least and this book is a good read interesting read also I highly recommend it Professional Football Research Association did a conglomerate book a combination book of authors for the history of the Super Bowl team and the first Super Bowl and that was an excellent book, the 1966 Green Bay Packers. That book was a great read with regards to the the um, 
what happened in the game with regards to the um, players and the team itself, the information on it, very, very interesting. And that is another good read, another interesting read, to say the least. So those are many books that we or we went over and we reviewed. Great reads there, good pickups there. I highly recommend them. And I'm trying to get Jim... And hopefully we can connect over the next couple of minutes. Seems to be a technical issue, unfortunately. And hopefully we can get them uh, over the get him over the next minute. Joe's still having issues too, getting on. And again. If you want any back issues of Gridiron Greats Magazine, Gridiron Greats Magazine is available uh, on the web. You can download PDF issues. And the... um, So if you want any back issues, please contact and um, our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com, and you can see all the ordering information with regards to it. And pick up any back issues, PDF versions of the back issues, They're all available for your liking. Okay, I think we have our guests. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Is that this time? Our guest tonight is an expert on an NFL team that in some cases has been long forgotten by the Martin game. He graduated from Ironton High School in 1981, an outstanding business student in college. His real passion was always history. In his spare time, he enjoys researching the history of his hometown and the development of professional football in Ironton, Portsmouth, and Ashland. He's a member of the Portsmouth Spartans Historical Society. He appeared in Before the League, a well-known TV documentary on the early professional football game, that aired nationally in 2015. I'd like to welcome tonight Mr. Jim Ridgewood. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Jim, uh, Joe's unavailable, so I'm going to be taking the interview with you, and let's get started. If you can give me some background information on how you became interested in the Arrington Tanks for our audience. Well, as a high school, well, actually, as a grade school student here at Arrington, uh, 
football stadium is a real iconic uh, symbol of the town. It's the same football stadium that the Ironton Tanks actually played in many, many years ago. Uh, it's still standing. It looks virtually the same as it did uh, the day it opened, which was 1926. And I got to play mm-hmm. there as a grade school kid. And, and as I got older, I got to play there. But I uh, really didn't know much about the tanks. Uh, I think the story about the tanks had kind of gotten a little bit off the course as, as an old semi-pro team, which I think a lot of people would assume that they were just a bunch of local guys who wanted to play a little football on the weekend, which I think it mm-hmm. originally started that way. Uh, in 1919, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who work in area plants who played a little high school ball, one or two might have played a little college, particularly just nothing but local people at that point. And it developed over the years to the point where they basically became a full-fledged NFL-type club hanging out in little, uh, little old Ironton, Ohio, which is uh, mm-hmm. in southern Ohio right along the Ohio River. And uh, the town had to change so much over the, you know, the, over the course of the years where it basically, I think a lot of history had been forgotten here. Uh, you know, the high school football team had become real prominent by the time I got in high school. Uh, the Tanks was just a name on the stadium wall. And uh, about the year 2002, the, uh, the Tank Stadium got a historical marker from the state of Ohio. Uh, I got a chance to uh, meet Glenn Press now, who was one of the uh, biggest stars ever, probably the biggest star ever that the Tanks ever saw, a legitimate Hall of Fame candidate. And uh, when I met Mr. Preston, I got to find out about the background, and I, I got hooked on it. Uh, he was, you know, he was up in age, pushing the hundred mark, but with a memory of a guy who's probably twenty to thirty years younger. And uh, his tales of a plane with the tanks led to me to do some research, and and you know, you find out that the the tanks were not just one era; there was two or three different eras. And by the time his final era in 1930 came around the tanks were taking on the NFL and beating them. And uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. pretty pretty big well, story for a little I, small city. I, I think right, yes, right around that time we looked, and again, I'm going to deviate from the question a little uh, because a lot of people have asked me over the years, if you look at the time frame roughly from 1929 up to, I want to say, 1934-35, the NFL got away from the teams like the tanks and any small, real small market teams and they were going back to, they wanted to go to the larger geographical areas. And as such, teams like the Tanks and several other ones, as we know, basically either folded or became different teams or moved to big cities, so on and so forth. So I, I can see, uh, in a way, the Tanks, to me, are very, very unique because they were done in 1930. And it's a very yeah, short history. It's, it's a very, very small history which I find yeah. very, very fascinating. Very, very fascinating. Well, so that's going to that's going to lead me to my I, second question, okay. if I could. The um, and we talked a little. Well, we we emailed us uh, back and forth on this. The tanks defeated three NFL teams, which is not well right. known. In 1930, they beat the Portsmouth Spartans, the New York Football Giants, and the Chicago Bears. In your opinion, and I, I really haven't read a lot about this, how did the Tanks ever get that great to beat those three teams? And the Spartans were a powerhouse at that time. Yes, uh, the, the Tanks had basically taken advantage of several situations. There was no NFL draft until 1936. So guys coming mm-hmm. out of college, and college football was huge. I mean, it was just as huge in, the, in that area as it is today. In fact, much bigger. 
because the NFL game was really uh, viewed about like professional wrestling. In fact, professional wrestling might have had a, had a little bit more than football did. It was just people viewed had a negative view of it, especially college coaches. Uh, mm-hmm. Always that fear that these that these college players were going to exit stage left and go join and make some money playing pro ball. So there was a lot of criticism about the pro game. Uh, it certainly had no had no resemblance to what we see today on TV. Uh, these players were playing for the love of their game. So that was one factor. There was no draft. Everybody got out of college, and you just looked to see. And most people's dreams playing college football wasn't to play in the NFL in those days. You know, most right, of them got out right. of college, and they're just looking for anything they can do. Uh, there weren't very many teams. The league was not on solid ground. And the money wasn't there. That typical lineman made about 50 bucks a game in the NFL. Mm-hmm. The star backs made about $150 a game. So mm-hmm. the money wasn't great. There was no retirement plan like they have now. There wasn't all this big-time benefits. Uh, and when the tanks had a great lure, they had a little catch here. They had complete control of the whole county school system, and they had comp- their management also had control of area schools in Kentucky. And so they take these college graduates who played a little football and said, look, we'll give you that NFL money, but you can teach school full-time here and have a nice day job in case you get hurt, in case you don't want to play mm-hmm. football anymore. You've got a good day job. And so it was really, by 1930, very almost no blue-collar people working. You know, These people all had nice, cushy teaching jobs. They usually coached at a high school to pad their wallet. And they also sometimes even not part games of the other teams, so just any way they could to give them some money. And uh, they were set up here. They were set up here really with a better security system than what the NFL was offering. Uh, and I think that's the ultimate ticket. Uh, by 1930, there was only one person on the roster that had played college football that was from Ironton. So only one Ironsonian on on the roster. The rest of them were recruited in major colleges like Nebraska, Iowa, Michigan. Uh, and it, they had a good setup here. And someone stayed here even afterwards and, and you know took teaching jobs and stayed. So the NFL mm-hmm. wasn't such a worry as it is today. Right. And I think right. that's the ultimate thing. The teaching job was, uh, you know, today you'd offer an NFL player a teaching job and they'd probably laugh at you. But to those days, right. it was it was it was a it was a, a full-time, lifetime job when NFL people viewed that as, oh, I'll probably get hurt next week. There's nothing left to do if I hurt my knee. And I can take this teaching job in Ironton, and I'll be secure. So they, they had a good setup, and they also brought these young men in here just kind of hoping that they'd find an Ironton girl and fall in love with them and stay. And that happened with a few right. too. So they had an ideal setup. And they had a real, right. aggressive, they had a real aggressive manager named Nick McMahon who had sent out recruiting letters to all these colleges, to all their star players, basically getting a guidebook of all the great players and mailing them out, uh, asking them to take a look at it. And this national recruiting campaign launched by Nick McMahon uh, basically brought them all in here. And uh, they set them up good and treated them well, and they became basically town people. Uh, They were members of the community, and they were set up good. Uh, The NFL, I don't think, had a whole lot to offer other than some name like Red Grange, most of those players weren't making any money. Football was always, in, at that time, really, especially professional football, was, was way behind professional baseball, which was the sport. And, yeah, that's uh, true. We both know, we both know the, the history. You know, years later, it started to change a little. 
Now, the, uh, 1930 team was very interesting because Greasy Neal was the coach. What can you tell us about his time with the Tanks? I think it's a very interesting story. Well, Greasy Neal was uh, famous to Arkansas. Uh, Greasy, uh, if people are history of baseball, know anything about the history of baseball, know Greasy was a, an outstanding hitter for the Reds on their championship, world championship team that beat the, in the famous uh, Black Sox series. And uh, so he was already a household name with Cincinnati, just about 100 and some miles away. So he was already a household name. Uh, he was coaching baseball not too far away from here, a minor league team, and they basically offered him a nice fat, fat, nice fat check and uh, a nice fat check and a chance to get back into coaching uh, football. And just for a few months, he was he was he was game for it. And he he came here and and uh, coached the uh, entire season, which turned out to be a nine-game season that year. And uh, right. he was a difference right. maker. Uh, before he came, right. Dwayne Presno was a player coach, and he let Presno basically become a star uh, as a as a player, and relieved him of those duties. And of course, Reggie Neal is a Hall of Fame football coach, and and he he did some outstanding coaching here uh, against teams like the Bears with Nagurski. He would he did a lot of different uh, goal line type defenses and stuff. He was a real football innovator, great motivator. Uh, he was a difference maker here. He he turned this and with the schedule with five pro games, five NFL games on a nine game schedule. Uh, this this it, it was it was it was a good setup, and the tanks had a lot of great players. He wasn't simply coaching one man like Preston, who was an outstanding player. At least ten players on that roster went on to play in the NFL after 1930. And three players right. on that roster had already played in the NFL beforehand. So 13 players had the NFL experience before or after 1930 with the Tanks. So on a small mm-hmm. roster, maybe 18 players, you got 13 of them that are NFL-type players who have played in the league or will play in the league. It was a quality roster he was coaching. So the Tanks were really kind of masquerading here. They were certainly on the level of any NFL team. And and to be able to, to perform well against NFL teams uh, probably shouldn't be surprising for anybody who looks at who the Tanks had on the roster and, and what the, the consistency of the roster was versus other teams in the league. Uh, there wasn't a lot right, of depth right. in the NFL. Uh, people didn't have these huge rosters. Even the NFL teams were, had a hard time carrying over 20-some players, 21, 22. Right. They couldn't hardly afford to pay more than that. So the, the Tanks had maybe a little shallower roster. Yes, sir. And again, remembering, too, that a lot of those guys played both sides of the ball. You know, they played the full 60 minutes, game in and game out. And, again, it, yeah, it, that's, it, it's, a, it, it's a tribute to those players for their for their stamina and athletic ability to make it through a 60-minute game like that. And, again, they right. didn't go well, you know, there was, there was no doctors running on the field there. You know, if you had a, you know, disco okay to shoulder, you popped it back in and went playing, and that was it, you know. Yeah, Mr. Presnell told me he played many a game. Presnell said he played many of games, full 60 minutes. And, and back no. in those days, you didn't have all the specialists either. There was, and Glenn Presnell was never a place kicker in college. But, in, you know, he ended up place kicking in the NFL. He had a record 54-yard field goal when he kicked in for the Detroit Lions against Green Bay, which stood up for, for a league record for many, many years. So these people mm-hmm. were basically uh, had to do it all. You know, you had to be good on defense. You couldn't be someone who didn't take pride in their defense. Uh, you had to play both ways. And uh, these people were tough, tough as nails. And 
they they just came out and played and played hard and they enjoyed the game and it, it wasn't all the big crowds. A typical crowd for a Tanks game at home could range from perhaps three to six thousand people here in Ironton. Uh, they played on the road some places like Redwood Field, which you know as Crosley Field, which is the old uh-huh. Red uh-huh. Stadium. Uh, for the Cincinnati Reds, Crosley later changed the name, but they played a couple those, those games against the Bears and the and the uh, New York Giants on the road at a neutral field. So those wins weren't at, here in Ironton. They were actually in Cincinnati. And uh, to beat two teams of that quality on the road on a neutral field was a pretty, pretty, pretty impressive, especially when they basically blew the, the Bears right off the field. Uh, that was a total right. route. Presnell set on the bench in the fourth quarter, didn't even have to play. And uh, the Bears had four Hall of Famers in that lineup, uh, with Nagurski in his rookie year basically tearing up the league. Uh, Red Grange uh-huh. in the backfield, and uh, uh-huh. they came in here. Not, I think the, we could look at the Giants game as maybe, wow, they weren't ready for. But these games weren't. They're called exhibitions today, but they took place in November. They were basically no, not, non-league contests would be their accurate, accurate term for them. So, so right. and the people on these teams didn't want to get humiliated or beat, beaten. So the Bears knew what was coming when they, before they got it because it was just both games were played in November and. And after beating the New York Giants, the, the Bears knew they were in for, going to be in for a game against the Tanks. Uh, the the sure. NFL really kind of frowned on these games. Uh, the league president, Mr. Carr, Joe Carr, was pretty much ordering that, that his teams no longer played people like the Tanks uh-huh. because the NFL had, had everything to lose and nothing to gain. But uh-huh. he couldn't tell the owners what to do because these owners in the NFL needed paychecks to – and a game between Iron and Ports, the two towns separated by 30 miles, and a big payday for, for, both, gotta, for, gonna, for both teams. I'm going to skip around um, to another question that we're going to ask you. What happened okay. to the tanks after 1930, and, and why and what was the demise of the team, in your opinion? Well, the Great Depression was obviously one factor. This was, this was a steel town and, and uh, heavy industry, and and uh, that's certainly a heavy factor in, in the tanks' demise. Uh, the tanks were never a profitable entity. There wasn't any money, and they usually had a local businessman basically dulling them out every year. And during the Great Depression, there wasn't any businessman in town ready to step up the plate to continue to pay debts on the tank. So that's one factor. But you also had the fact that there was really almost no teams out there that were independent teams other than maybe the Memphis team. They were able to take on the tanks. The tanks were almost to a point where they were going to have to schedule NFL games every week, and all the games were going to have to be played on the road. Other than Portsmouth, uh-huh. there was really no team willing to come to Ironton. Uh, so uh-huh. you're you're looking at a, t- a team which has no ability to hardly to fill a schedule. The NFL teams were wanting to get away from playing the tanks. Uh, the NFL was basically trying to put the law down about scheduling the tanks. So you have that issue as well. And, uh, and I, th- I think, too, again, we go back to something we mentioned before. The NFL was looking for the bigger cities. And, again, Ironton was not, you know, in their in their future. That's really what it comes to, you know, and a lot a lot of it had to do with that, I think, also. And, again, you couldn't have many teams and, and play every game on the road either. And again, that was that was another issue, and it was common. You know, you see a lot of semi-pro teams of that time frame. They played their entire season on the road. They just traveled from game to game, and that was it. 
So the, it's, it's it's very interesting to to see and, and view it. Another point I want to make um, is that way back when in 2004, you wrote an article for Gridiron Greats, which was called uh, titled "Remembering the Arrington Tanks." How difficult or easy was it for you to research the article? And I also uh, understand that uh, Glenn Presno enjoyed it. Can you give us some more background on that? Presno was still alive, and I was able to have the benefit of actually having uh, a living member of the tanks, the last surviving member of the Ironton Tanks, as, uh, as a person I could interview. So I was blessed to have Mr. Presno around to to uh, give me some comments to the story, uh, probably some of the last comments he ever had a chance to give anyone. And uh, the research uh, was a little bit tougher. You have to basically go into the library here. There's not a lot of lot of stuff on the Internet. You have to look at the old uh, microfish reels and find the articles. Some of the articles were kind of blurry, kind of hard to look at. Uh, the library back then didn't have a digitalizer. Now it's a little bit clearer, plainer. But a lot of the old newspapers, when they kind of copied them, they were not real clear. Some of the, some of the articles are not even legible. So it wasn't really mm-hmm. difficult. It wasn't time-consuming that much. Uh, I had some good help on the project. I had Paul Neal, Jim Kennedy, Bob Vaughn, members of Portsmouth Spartans Historical Society, and some of those people supplied images for the article and any other help I need was need, was needing for, for the article. So I, I was lucky. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of good support system. The people at Briggs Library in town were big help as well. Now, you have an interesting story, which I'd like for you to share with our listeners about uh, a lot of our listeners and readers of the magazine, obviously, are big on early football memorabilia, and in particular, uh, any existing or remaining tanks memorabilia. Can you tell us a story about that that happened with the Hall of Fame? Yes. Uh, we had a, a resident here in Ironton named Scubby McMahon. Scubby was a one-man Hall of Fame for the tanks. We set up exhibits here there, and when Pro Football Hall of Fame first opened up, they were pretty desperate for items to display. Uh, there wasn't a budget to buy anything, and they were dependent upon donations. And Mr. McMahon uh, had, Scubby had basically, over the years, collected everything he could find about the tanks. I think he had a jersey, uh, which would be a, a holy grail. Somebody else out there has a, has a two mm-hmm. tanks jersey in their collection. He had programs. He had lots of little uh, photos. His photo collection is pretty much the, uh, the the collection of everything he could get his hands on. Uh, if, if someone is out there looking to collect, I can tell you some of the items to look for. Uh, the first thing is the Tanks Reunion Ashtray. You'll see occasionally some of those on sale on the Internet. Uh, the Tanks uh-huh. Reunion Ashtray for 1948 it was made here locally, passed out to everyone in attendance. Nothing fancy, but it clearly states what it is right on the uh, right on the ashtray. They don't run great value. Uh-huh. You can get one. I've seen them as low as twenty-five. I've seen them a hundred bucks or more. The other items uh-huh. are the are the paper memorabilia, which you can get a program. Some of the programs can run pretty cheap. Some of them can run pretty expensive, depending on the condition. Most of them have been glued inside inside into the scrapbooks, and that's usually a a second game trying to get them out of the scrapbooks without tearing them all off. Uh, uh-huh. Anything uh-huh. with with Jim Thorpe's name on it. Thorpe played against the tanks one year. 
would be worth a tremendous fortune. There was an item that just recently sold on the internet for a small fortune that were uh-huh. in the game where Jim Thorpe played against the Spartans. I think this one might have taken place in Portsmouth. Uh, other holy uh-huh. grails out there. I think if, if a person is really looking for the items, 1930 yeah. is at the era where someone might have a game film. Films were not impossible to, to have, and if someone would have a game film from the tanks for, for the tanks in 1930, which could have been shot in Cincinnati because uh, they played two games there or down in Memphis, uh, that would be worth right. a ton of money, especially to to, to uh, any collector. Photos, any uh-huh. photos of the tanks in game action, all kinds of references to lots of photographers being on the sidelines in some of these newspaper accounts, but not uh-huh. hardly any uh-huh. photos. And game tickets. Game tickets is the big uh- one. Uh, game ticket, there's someone who has one on the internet now who wants a small fortune. The game uh-huh. tickets from Ironton, if a game was played here at Ironton, it will say Beachwood Stadium Corporation on it. It won't mention the tanks. Uh-huh. It'll mention what game it was, like game one. It looked like raffle tickets, but they sell. You can get it great for a small fortune. So those, those are you some of the saying? items. It's interesting to me, and you know, all the shows I've attended over the years, and I'm looking at the national shows that I've been to, I probably have seen two tank programs in the past 20 years, physically actually see them. I've never seen a tank's ticket stub or ticket for sale at any of these shows. And to me, any NFL ticket stub and program, in my opinion, 1930 and back is rare and um, be prepared to pay a very, very high price for it. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the fun of collecting, and it's part of the fun, especially if you like the early history of the game. You're reading history right there with some of these programs. Uh, they're fascinating read, fascinating read, to say the least. All right, I've only got a few more minutes, uh, Jim. you have any other final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience with regards to uh, your team there, the Tanks? Well, the uh, Tanks is one of the great stories uh, of all time in pro football. Uh, these guys were, uh, they came here to the little town of Ironton, most of them not having a clue where Ironton was on the map. I think uh, Mr. Presnell, you know, made a little joke about it one time, about he, you know, he didn't have a clue where it was at. Uh, he drove here, believe it or not, in those days in a Model T Ford all the way from Nebraska to here, which had to be an adventure in itself just to, just to visit to see if he was going to stay. Uh, the tanks are a spectacular organization, a great part of the town heritage. The football team is still being used today. Uh, they put down pretty-looking turf. The place looks brand new to visit. If you're here, if, anyone, if any of your audience wants to come here, the outside of the football team has some nice uh, billboards, posters up, uh, talking about the mm-hmm. history of the team. Uh, it's 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 a covered stadium. Uh, it's got wooden floors. Uh, it's got a feeling like you were back in time. And uh, on Friday nights here in Ironson, that place is full. It seats about 3,000 to 3,300, I think is what they say. They pack them a little mm-hmm. tighter than that for games. And uh, just, it's an iconic symbol of the community. It's one of the few places where you can say Jim Thorpe actually played here in front of these stands in the NFL. I, I'm sure mm-hmm. Chicago would really feel I'm sure he played there, but there's not very many places still standing in the NFL where Jim Thorpe actually played football. And Jim played here one of his last games. His last year of playing pro football, he played one game in 28. 
1927, he was player coach at Portsmouth, and he played right here at this stadium. And he was, wow. it was the first wow. time, it's the first time Ironson ever lost to a Portsmouth team. Jim Thorpe, pushing 40 years of age, was out there on the field and helping us defeat the Ironton Tanks. First time Ironton ever lost a pro game to a Portsmouth team. And that was game on for me. Wow. Uh, the, the, the Tanks really came out of that rivalry between two towns of Ironton and Portsmouth. Portsmouth had beaten Ironton, and it was time for Ironton to do something about it. And Nick McMahon was brought in to be business manager and the national recruiting campaign to bring in those college All-Americans was on. And uh-huh. the Spartans up, the forces up the ante by joining the league in 1930, getting NFL. So there's an NFL team 30 miles away with a brand-new franchise, and the Tanks were here wanting to meet them and match them. Community to community. Uh-huh. High school football was uh-huh. okay back in those days, but the rivalries was in, in this area was certainly in, at the NFL. At the NFL at the professional level with that NFL team just a few miles down the road. And a little kid at Ironton was not going to let that Portsmouth group uh, beat them. Uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. there were some iconic games. Three, they played three iconic games in 19, uh, 1930, including a snowball game toward the, toward the end of the season. Played basically pretty much on the ice. So uh-huh. it was even uh-huh. a great run for the Tanks. They played five NFL games and managed to win three out of the five. So uh, they were certainly NFL ready. Yeah, it's a great it's a great history of the team, and that that whole state of Ohio is just a hotbed of football history, as far as I'm concerned, of the early NFL game. Jim, I'm almost out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight and sharing your thoughts on the history of a great NFL team, the Arrington Tanks. Thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you, sir. It was my pleasure. That's Jim Ridgway. He's a historian of the Ironton Tanks. What a great story of the tanks. We've got two minutes left in our show. I'd just like to remind our listening audience that uh, we'll be back in February with two more shows. Uh, A couple of different new guests will be coming on the show in uh, February talking about football history and memorabilia. So it's at this time we're going to say goodnight. I'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast, Good Iron Greats Magazine, the podcast, our episode number two. And we'll we'll be back in February with two more shows. Again, any information uh, you need on our magazine, check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. That's it for tonight. Thanks for listening. Good night from Good Iron Greats where the legends of the gridiron will always live on. Good night, everyone. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. (laughs) 
How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.